Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog. And joining me today to talk about this one, I did not have to talk him into washing up for this. It's Holden Martinson. Holden, what's going on? Not a lot. I am happy to be <laughs> talking about a movie uh, by one of my favorite directors. And uh, what I was hoping I would like and has turned out to be one of my favorite movies of the year so far. Look at that. Yeah. So uh, Jane Campion uh, returned to filmmaking for what? The first time in 12 years, Holden, I think it was. Um, it's her first feature length film in 12 years since Bright Star in 2009. She did two seasons of Top of the Lake in between that. Yeah. Maybe some shorts and whatnot. Yeah. Top of the Lake was like my first introduction to Jane Campion, which is kind of odd because she'd obviously been like a very well-renowned filmmaker before then. But I just, you know, I just happened to watch Top of the Lake before I really got into like revisiting older um, independent movies. And I, uh, so I, I, I was like kind of curious once everyone started talking about this one. And, um, and then I saw that like uh, Holden is actually like gone as gone on his own little uh, Jane Campion. I don't know if it was a rewatch or a watch, but I, I know you logged a lot of them on Letterboxd in the last year. So I thought oh, it would be fun to talk to Holden about this one. And, uh, but the, yeah, in Power of the Dog though is uh, a, a Netflix release. Uh, it stars uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemons, Cody Smith McPhee, uh, amongst some other supporting characters. But uh, it's set in Montana in 1925 on a on a ranch that is owned by these brothers, Phil and George Burbank, played by both Cumberbatch and Plemons, respectively. Uh, they work as you know uh, they, they own this ranch where they you know they they train horses, they they herd cattle, and you know you know, make money off of cattle hides and, um, whatever else you do when you, uh, run a ranch. Uh, but they, they're both very successful, but they're very different. Uh, Phil is just very brash and really play, uh, plays the part of a cowboy in the stereotypical way. Whereas George is a little more reserved and, uh, doesn't even, doesn't necessarily even dress the part. Uh, there's an inn owner that lives near them named Rose Gordon, who, again, that's who's played by Kirsten Dunst. And, she hosts a lot of these guys and uh, Phil doesn't really necessarily treat her that well, but uh, George takes a liking to her and they get married and she moves onto their property uh, along with her, uh, her college age son, Peter played by Cody Smith McPhee, who they eventually send to college, but he ends up, you know, coming back on his summer break and is hanging around a lot is not particularly treated all that well by Phil. And uh, throughout the course of the movie though, there's a bit of a shifting dynamic between Phil and Pete while uh, Rose kind of uh, struggles with her struggles on her own adapting to her new life. And I know it sounds like a kind of an odd premise for a movie. So it, it, it's, it's pretty, it's really, really impressive that this movie ends up, you know, uh, revealing itself in the way it does in just a very, very uh, intense and suspenseful way, despite the fact that like, ostensibly, it's, there's not a ton of uh plot there necessarily uh hold not hold hold i want to back up for a second before we uh delve too deep into the movie i want to ask you um when because i really didn't know much about the movie going in you might have learned a little bit more about it beforehand but uh when you hear uh jane campion is going to be making a uh a movie set on a montana ranch a western with kirsten dunn's jesse plummins and benedict cumberbatch uh what's your initial response to that as someone who really likes her films i guess a a better way to ask me like what do you like so much about her work and because of that what do you think when you here she's going to make a movie like this set on a ranch so to we'll go a little bit backwards here um yeah what i like about her work is oh that's a a good question because there's so much that i like about her work the biggest thing that i really admire about her her style is her willingness to trust the audience she leaves a lot of details unspoken she will show more than she tells there's there's just a real lyrical quality to the visual storytelling um, in her movies um, without being too flashy or anything her movies are very beautiful to be clear just in their look she mentioned the power of the dog uh shoots in new zealand uh so a little bit of a cheat code there but she certainly makes the most of it (laughs) oh yeah i mean it's 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 one of those things where New Zealand does not look like um, Montana. You know, it does not look like the American West at all, save for kind of like the rolling hills and 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 the 
the the fields of just this dry golden like uh grass and wheat just everywhere it, it feels like the west though like the american west that's what's really lovely about it it's kind of like how uh like in ratatouille if you watch that movie it cheats the geography of paris um pretty significantly but it really feels like paris it has that romance to it where power of the dog you know that captures the utter loneliness um and just this uh this this feeling of of the west where you have all these mountains and all this unused land that stretches forever and there's just no one else there it, which is you know something that jane campion does she's very aware of her settings and her environments she uses them very well in her in her films and you know the i think the the main thing with jane campion that i find so fascinating uh you know if you're a a, a, a film fan or just a person who loves stories that gets up gets hung up on what characters should or shouldn't do on motivations um and so forth jane campion can present some challenges because she shows characters who are very emotional who make very personal choices that that you that you can watch and see well i wouldn't and say well i wouldn't do it that way mm -hmm. um uh that's that's true for for all of her at least since her first like theatrical feature sweetie um where you have characters who are unable to fully articulate what they want and are constantly looking for these means of expression for themselves which is a a, a huge theme throughout her work it's a um, I, it's, i'm really i really like the way you put that because i mean that that's, that's obviously a um very much so literally the case in the piano uh, which because I've only watched that in the cut in in addition to Top of the Lake and in the cut, like I think the Meg Ryan character really kind of like uh, is a pretty good example of what you're talking about, where she's really hard to a hard uh, nut to crack uh, and you're and you're not really clear on what she's doing the whole time, though. It doesn't necessarily like doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily like in a frustrating where you would think that person's acting out of character, but it's like she's telling you something about this person just through really, really um unconventional character choices from what you would normally expect and when you think you can normally tell where a movie's going and i mean i know part of what i liked about power of the dog was i had no idea where the hell it was going but i i, I wasn't like i didn't think these characters necessarily rank false in any way yeah and that's sort of what's so incredible about her movies is that you know the, the sort of truth of the human experience is more important than characters who then who who might not make the most rational choices um which i think allows her films to be a lot more rewarding a lot more potent um and you know a lot more surprising and uh as for power of the dog you know i think for a little while um jane campion really worked in a period piece mode you know uh with um an angel at my table which is uh about um what's her name i just knew this it's frame uh janet frame and the piano obviously takes place like in uh, 19th century um new zealand new zealand um uh, and then after that you have uh the portrait of a lady and then after that she does these two contemporary films holy smoke and uh in the cut which are very much um very modern movies with very um like a big theme in her a big I guess recurring element in her films um, is, you know, in the ways women are often subjugated by their place and time. All of her movies, until Power of the Dog, um, are you know are about women and and sort of the social parameters they have to operate within. Um, in a lot of ways, that can manifest in their sexuality. With an angel at my table, it's. Um, sort of in the ways women are treated um, in terms of mental health. Uh, and then even Bright Star, which is maybe, you know, that takes place in early 19th century, um, like England, you know, at the at the uh, start of the Romantic uh, era. Um, and, um, it, the, and the issue there is more about class and about how Ben Wishaw's character in that film is really poor, um, despite uh, him being this figure who will go on to be influential 
and uh yeah i mean she she she's very interested in a lot of that and power of the dog you know it is it's a period piece it is also the first film of hers to um explicitly unambiguously have um a, a character who's a man at the center mm. uh because you know bright star yes ben weshaw's a lead but that that movie's abby cornish's it's about her it's about fanny braun and uh this is also kind of the first story of hers where someone is like really nostalgic for for an era that they're not a part of you know where most people in her films feel constricted by where they are um where maybe in a more modern setting they would have more freedom you know benedict cumberbatch he kind of wants to live in a wild west or in a yeah in the wild west that hasn't existed for decades by the start of the film, right. you know, that didn't exist when he got there. You know, the film takes place in 1925 movies are happening. This is the roaring twenties. Like he is essentially, and he's, you know, not a, yeah, a rancher. He comes from a very, a very privileged upbringing and he kind of, you know, has his reasons for, for wanting to, to play out this, to play this part of a, of a rancher well yeah so uh, what i want to tell you is I, I think i think it's funny you just ran through like this whole list of all these different kind of films she's done she's done so many different things and then you kind of ended up on like yeah her like setting it up with all these uh guys that are you keep referencing this other point in time and i and it was one of my big takeaways from the movie and that like one she like clearly gets this setting and it's i mean it's still a western even if it's not like a western in the traditional time period that you're oh, referring yes. to yes yes but in a way, I thought it was kind of funny because one, I don't, I'm wondering how nostalgic he actually is for it as much as he just like wants to romanticize it because he's like, he's playing, putting on an act as we kind of come to understand later in the movie. And this is the, the act that he is putting on. It's one that like, he wants to pretend that that is really, really who he is. And that's the time he belongs in. But my takeaway was that I was, thought, I thought it was kind of funny and that like, I thought she was really smart and when, and how she went about like showing us a different type of Western. And I, but what, by that, what I mean, is like, a lot of Westerns are like, they know exactly what they are. And it feels like, and I know I I've been pretty upfront about this on the, on the podcast in that, like, I, I have, I have not seen a lot of Westerns actually, but like, I've seen more in the last couple of years than I had, and I'd say the previous 10. And like, I know a lot of them, it's like, they, they're Westerns, they know what there are. And, the, and those characters like fit it like a glove, fit those roles like a glove, which is what I think what you can say about the harder they fall, which came out a couple months ago. Um, it's just like, it just knows what it is. And they jump into it. A, a movie that I watched for the first time during COVID uh, was McCabe and Mrs. Miller, uh, yes. which is, um yeah robert robert altman's movie with warren Beatty, and you know i one of my funny takeaways from that having you know within like a year of watching that i think was when i rewatched all of deadwood because uh i wanted in advance of the deadwood movie i was like oh like deadwood knows it's a western these characters talk like they're in a western they they know the rules of the western and then mccabe and mrs miller is like ostensibly about this guy that just like doesn't know he's in a western and he's like way in over his head when he like shows up to this town and thinks he's going to just like kind of have his way in certain ways. And it's not that simple for him. And what I thought was kind of funny about this was that it was different in that like these characters like cosplaying a Western uh, one, like one of them is just like a super try hard. Whereas like, you know, George, while he's like seemingly successful in running this ranch is just not, does not have the disposition of a typical cowboy. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was just like a very unique spin. I was appreciated that she just kind of like campaigns able to like, I don't know, just like parachuting into this genre, but with her own unique take on it in this like place that like truly like, I don't want to say necessarily looks the part because like you said, Montana doesn't look like New Zealand, but it, it gives off the feel of it, if nothing else. Yeah. So she gives you this setting, but then she like pops these characters in there that like are not your traditional Western characters, but like are like working, either working those jobs or like trying to very much so pretend to have that role, which I just thought was like a pretty interesting kind of take on things even before you get to like, a lot of the meat of the story and what it's really about. I was like, Oh, I really like how she just like went about approaching this in a way that just wasn't, you know, a run of the mill Western, which I can really like those movies in a way. Like I said, that's what the harder they fall was. And I, and I really, and I really like that movie. I guess it's funny. Another Netflix movie. So Netflix has had a Western heavy fall right now, uh, or, or I don't want to say fall. We're kind of in winter now, but you know what I mean? So I, it, it's, it's just funny to hear you kind of like run through her, her filmography and make the comment about how like, you know, I think you made some you made some kind of comment to the effect of just like er, people learning to live their truth, and uh, that is certainly like 
kind of at the heart of this too. And that the, and that this, uh, and that Phil is just like very much not doing that. And, but it, it it's kind of, I thought it was just like an incredibly interesting watch because the, the Benedict Cumberbatch performance can like kind of rub you the wrong way. It's, it's like the central performance in this movie and it can kind of rub you the wrong way. Cause you're so used to seeing him in a different mode. And it's like, I don't know if I buy him as a cowboy. And then you, you kind of understand what this movie is about. And it's like, Oh wow. Like that's probably how we were supposed to feel about him. And it, I, I just thought it was kind of brilliant. Yeah, that's. I think that was something I saw someone else say was that Benedict Cumberbatch is not convincing uh, as the character he's he's meant to play, which is the point. He is someone yeah. who does not belong, and who is trying very hard to look like he belongs. Who um, leans maybe a little bit too hard into it. Um, and you know, I I I I, gotta, I guess I got to walk one thing. Um, I said back. You know, sure. Um, at least half. A, uh, a bit, which is the idea that Benedict Cumberbatch kind of wants to live in the past, which he does for a couple reasons that we learn. Um, but he's also someone who, um, if he was living now, he could probably be happier given what we learn about his character. He could maybe be a little more free to express himself, but uh, go find his own Bronco Henry, if you will, to, to find an, <laughs> another Bronco Henry, um, which you know, Jane Campion will often make characters who. You sympathize with even if they make choices that that can be frustrating. Um, and the flip side of that is is Benedict Cumberbatch as as Phil Burbank, as someone who you don't like, who is unambiguously an antagonistic force. But the more you watch, you find a really wounded soul. Like one of the one of the really so I've I've seen this twice, and it. The first time I saw it, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the movie was doing. And so it was kind of taking me out of it. And I liked it a lot. And afterwards, because I saw this with, with my wife and she loved it right away. Really? She's not a film person. Oh, yeah. She's not a huge film person, but she saw it. She was just in it. And we talked about it for hours and we had a really, really great time. And so seeing it a second time, knowing where it was going, it was so easy to just settle in, knowing how all the pieces fit and picking up on a lot of the larger things that I missed. And one of the big things is that Phil's, this is a movie that I, and I didn't totally get this the first time, but this is a movie about very, very lonely people. Um, and, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch is someone who wants very badly to be a macho, macho man and to be loved. And so he is constantly, um, berating his brother, you know, Jesse Plemons, who well, it's, it's funny that you met, you mentioned that specifically. Cause one thing that struck out to me, I, I kind of watched, I, I mostly watched it again tonight. Like I had to, yeah. in order to get my viewing in before we started this, I had to, I fast forwarded through a couple of slow parts. Didn't really feel the need to watch the cow castration scene again. You know, there are a few things there I could, I could skip. Um, you know what it is. It'll come back when it comes. Yeah. To but uh, there's the moment where like right after uh, George and Rose get married, where he, she, she, he's like, she's just, he's just like looking at her and he's like, well, he's like, I just want to say it feels so good to not be alone. And that's after oh, you've yeah. that that's after you have already seen that, like presumably for most of their adult lives, it appears he has shared a bedroom with his brother. Um, and they uh slept in twin beds next to each other. So he yeah. for him to like express that sentiment, despite the fact that like he had he he literally has not been alone, but he figuratively has just shows says so much about the relationship that the two of them and that George and Phil have. Um, just a really quick tangent. So there, that scene, I totally forgot about it the first, uh, you know, the second time in, and then it's the scene that just unlocked the whole thing for me. Um, the that scene is so beautiful um, because it ends on this shot where um, Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons, who who are married in real life, um, playing husband and wife again after their season of Fargo. The best season of Fargo. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Um, <laughs> But the you see the camera just um, rotating around them, like using the pair as like a as like this axis. You see them so in love. Um, like the first time I saw it, I was I had kind of written off Jesse Plemons as like this inattentive, kind of ineffectual, um, a absent husband, and he sort of is, um, but he's not. He it's clear that he loves Rose. He very he isn't always there, but he very much cares for this person. Um, but there's this shot where they're, you know, the you see the grass and uh, shifting and the mountains kind of moving. Um, and you see these people in love. 
there's a very similar shot um, later where Phil and um, Peter are alone when they've started to hang out with one another and they're um, planting the, um, the stakes for the fence and you see Phil look over at Peter and the camera is moving the same way, just the, this object of his affection, curiosity, you know, just of, of some kind of, of, of warmth to him. And I, I, I like how, you know, the, it doesn't draw too much attention to itself. Well, I have to admit, I did kind of laugh. Like that's a very beautiful shot. You see him like in, he's calling Peter over and he's like picking something out of the ground in a very gentle way. But then like right before that, they'd had the camera on Phil where he is putting the stake in the ground. It looks incredibly phallic. (laughs) And so it's like, okay, that's not so subtle. And it's just like right in your face. And I, I couldn't help but laugh at that. It is. He's, he's, he's planting his, his, his wooden, uh, wooden dick into the ground. (laughs) Um, Jane Campion, not a subtle filmmaker when it comes to sexuality, which is awesome. Like she yeah, owns yeah, it. Yeah, she's complete, she, it's one of the most in- interesting things about her films in the way that she just kind of wields sexuality as a tool. She's very, very blunt about sexuality. And, uh, you know, she's not like, you know, she's not making like softcore porn or anything, but like it is what it is. And she finds a myriad of ways to, to express it. Um, but uh, anyway, to go back a little bit, like, Phil very badly wants his brother in his life. He wants someone to connect to, and he just can't help but get in his own way and be so diminutive and just at so that's so he and then when his brother's like, I met this this amazing woman and we're gonna get married. Phil's response is she's after our money. She's a schemer. And then he proceeds to torture and humiliate her psychologically because he and i mean another part of this well i think it's jealousy actually you know like he 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 can't be happy because he can't be his true self though he so much so wants to just you know fit this heteronormative mold that his brother is able to like so easily like just uh slide into and with without seemingly much effort and he's just so angry because like George has found some level of contentment that he just he just can't have. It's I think that's that's exactly right. And uh, um, on a side note, Phil does not like piano in this movie. What's the like the first time you get a sense that he's not a good guy? He is yelling at strangers to turn off a player piano, and right. then later Kirsten Dunst is uh, after being asked by Jesse Plemons to like, hey, could you like brush up on your piano skills like? For this dinner it'd be a huge help she's really reticent about it the the first thing that happens she tries to seclude herself and then phil she sits down at the piano you see benedict cumberbatch in the in the background out of focus just sort of walking up the stairs around the frame walking around the stair walking up the stairs and then you hear this the most ominous banjo not since deliverance <laughs> has a banjo been so foreboding he then she's like playing the song and he mimic he he uh copies the melody on the banjo kind of letting her know she's not alone and then he kills he just shreds on the banjo just just shoving it in her face well i was gonna Um, ask did did, when you watch it i'm guessing the second time you watched it on netflix i watched it in theater as well oh oh, so so your second viewing is also in theater I saw both times in theaters. I'm very jealous about that. So and, and I, I might ask you a little bit more about that experience later on, but you know, I watched on you know, Netflix both times with closed captioning. And so it actually says when he's playing the banjo, it's, it says like in brackets expertly plays banjo. Like it actually <laughs> says, says that. And it's like making it clear that like, he's like really good at this. And she, uh, you know, is, a, she's a little bit of a novice. And, you know, I think it's, I think they, I heard someone else make the point in the podcast that like, uh, or I heard someone else make a point on another podcast, like maybe it was some comment when they have that dinner party, though. I didn't pick up on it on the second viewing where whether, whether it be one of their parents or the like, governor and his wife, like someone might've made a comment like, oh no, Phil was the smart one or something like that. Earlier in the movie, Phil does make a comment about how George really could barely get through college. And it's like implied that like, yeah, he's obviously more um, articulate than George and has a sharp tongue and all that. But like, I mean, apparently he's like very gifted and very smart and like, obviously like, oh, he's, uh, 
skilled in one instrument and presumably book smart in a few different hints were led to were given. And so it's like, it's all the more telling that like, I mean, that, that scene with the banjo, I guess is telling in a, a couple ways. One, like you mentioned, and maybe in a lot of her movies, they're kind of about like, you know, how women are subjugated in some way. And he just feels the need to keep putting this woman down at every turn. So that's just one example of that in this movie, but two, it just shows like a little bit of insight into like, how cultured this guy actually probably could be except he's making a choice to be something else because he just feels so feels the need so badly whether it be between like you know hiding a lot of his intellectual gifts or playing this cowboy part or like you know even just being a cowboy thing aside just like being masculine in whatever way he thinks is masculine including not bathing like he's doing it he's doing the most and that uh both that dinner party scene where he just goes in there unwashed despite george's uh request and that banjo scene are just like really really interesting scenes and for a western to even have that tell you a lot about that character and they're done very well oh yeah and well the if I think the exact details is that Phil went to Yale and he studied classics. Oh, they said and Yale in the movie. They say Yale. He went. Oh, geez, Yale. I missed that. Wow. They're they're. That's the thing about this family. They are. Uh, they're like East Coast old money people. They are very very rich, and Phil resents huh. anything that reminds him of that. Including, that's. I mean, that's the first thing we learn about him is that he has not taken an indoor bath. Uh, it is implied ever. And they've lived on that ranch for like 20 25 years. years. Yeah. yeah. And like uh, the governor played by uh, David, uh, David Carradine. Yes. Um, or Keith like, Carradine. Keith Carradine. David's the uh, – David's the – yeah. Deceased, yeah. Um, Keith Carradine's like, so does he speak to the bulls in Latin or Greek? That's the joke he makes. And uh, yeah, just Benedict Cumberbatch has just no interest in any of that. Or Phil, I guess. And, you know, without spoiling the ending – it is very interesting in the way that you see the, the final way you see Phil is kind of more reminiscent of, of where he, he, he comes from, um, which is a, you know, a, a bittersweet fate for that character, we'll say. Anyway, yeah, so he's, yeah, he just, he hates everything about anyone intruding on his way of life, which is what makes, you know, when Peter comes, you know, makes that so refreshing, um, is he has someone he can take under his wing he can show what it's like to be a real man out in the the frontier only for this very studious uh nerdy um kid to to kind of turn that back on phil and to kind of turn phil's own need to look so manly back on himself yeah it's it's just incredible because cody smith mcphee you know the first interaction they have with each other uh phil and and peter oh, um it, it is so hostile mm -hmm. it is you know because uh peter is a very soft-spoken coded as like like effeminate um a uh, young man he has a lisp um and he's just he's just fodder for these gruff menly men <laughs> and uh it makes the and, and then he's gone for a huge chunk of the movie and when he comes back it it makes that relationship so much more um the relationship between phil and peter so uh fascinating yeah so let me ask you about that and so much as but uh so let me let me ask you about that and so much as i'm curious was there a point prior to when peter comes back from college where you like uh started to like you know pick up on something that like there might be something there with respect to Phil's sexuality because you know there's the scene where you see him like he's obviously talking about Bronco Henry a little bit in the movie before then I actually missed uh I guess I saw the scene where uh Peter was uh watching him by the lake and I yeah. it, but I, I I did not see the BH on the handkerchief that he uses to uh uh to pleasure himself with and I missed that on the first viewing but I still think like I I kind of had some thought in my head like oh Maybe this guy's just like really repressed, even before we ever got to that point in the movie. W did you start to think there was like something else going on in that regard, even before we actually have that scene by the lake where one, you see him pleasuring himself with that handkerchief, but two, uh, Peter finds his like stash of magazines of like um, men in various stages of undress? Yeah. You know, there is something about the way that. Phil talks about Bronco Henry over and over again. Mm -hmm. 
he just idolizes this man who we can never know we can never meet like we never get a flashback of of phil and and bronco henry you know taming the frontier together um it's just this one man's memory and uh you know one thing that i think is is really interesting is uh especially in something like top of the lake where jane campion is very pointed um in showing the ways in which modern women are still dismissed by men in everyday interactions there's there's always there's a lot more i think psychosexual drama to that than uh and and even in a lot of campion's other work where like you know women are kind of at odds with with men and living in a patriarchal uh, uh hierarchy you know the thing with phil is that you never get the sense that he actually wants kirsten dunst she's really the only or or um, or the two housekeepers who are also women who work for him. Like, there's never really any sexual danger or tension. He clearly just does not like that she exists. He <laughs> hates women for being women. He is not interested in, in them. If he could, he would hang a giant sign out his giant ranch uh, ranch house that says, no girls allowed, and that would <laughs> be it. But it's clear, like, and, and there's also another scene early on where... Um, after they've had that dinner at uh, at Rose's, and you have um, all of his all of Phil's men and his employees are like drinking and dancing with with various uh, women um, who live, I guess, in that small town, and he's just so alone. He doesn't try to 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 talk to anyone. You know, he stands on the sidelines, and then he goes to bed early. And he actually ends up in uh, Peter's room, which I think is really interesting um oh, i don't know if i picked up on that it's I th it's really subtle but you can kind of see where his um where his room is situated and you can see the desk and uh, how the uh um has the same two corner windows and uh it's just a, a, a nice touch there that you know phil is gonna is gonna end up in peter's orbit at, at some point and that the relationship between these men is what's gonna really uh drive this this story home mm -hmm. um yeah and um then of course you get to that scene where he is you know where he's uh with where he has bronco henry's handkerchief which i almost didn't notice the first time i had kind of noticed it when uh because i saw the, the monogram backwards hb oh bronco henry mm -hmm. the thing that i didn't notice the first time was uh, uh those magazines that phil has belonged to bronco henry they have his name written on a, on the top in like uh in barely legible handwriting that uh yeah that peter discovers and and from then on you know it also uh becomes ambiguous what phil's intentions are with peter once because what because obviously what happens is um i guess it's not obvious but what happens is peter sees phil and bill catches him mm -hmm. And you think that he's gonna like lash out more. He's gonna he's gonna lash out, and uh, and you don't know what's gonna happen um, because as as we learn early on, Peter is he is the kind of the man of the house. His his um his dad has passed away, so it's just him and his mom. And uh, you know it, it's it is sort of implied that it's a suicide that uh, um that this. Uh, former Mr. That the late Mr. Park, uh, no, Gordon, that's his last name. Uh, you know, it's implied that he dies because that he kills himself. Um, although there's maybe some suggestion that uh, maybe there were some hijinks, um, some subtle implication, <laughs> but uh, um, where was I going with this? Ah, uh, yes. So there's this incredible tension that keeps rising between uh peter and um phil especially once we've seen once peter has seen how um how rose is faring kind of being stuck with phil because george is just off doing other business and managing monies and affairs it's never really explained what he's doing um just that he can't be there um but uh yeah and then and then there becomes this this 
interesting romantic and sexual tension between Phil and Peter. And the scene that really galvanizes it is when uh, Phil shows Peter Bronco Henry's saddle, um, which we've seen earlier in the film. We've seen uh, Phil kind of um, clean it up, polish it, really take care of it very lovingly. Um, and uh, we get this callback to another scene where Phil talks to his men. He's like, you look at the mountain uh, and you'll see things if you know how to use your eyes. No one knows what Phil sees. Um, and then Peter figures it out right away once Phil tries to show him. Mm -hmm. There's a dog in the mountain. I, I did not see the dog. I don't know if you were able to see the dog. <sighs> I'm, I've, it, it always takes me a minute to figure it out. But it really... Maybe it helped on the big screen. I didn't have the big screen. But I don't know. I, I couldn't really place it. It doesn't help that much. Because it, <laughs> it, it doesn't look totally like a dog. Okay. Um, <laughs> but you can kind of see it. But it's it's there where Phil is like so impressed. And it's this moment where Benedict Cumberbatch just in this brilliant, brilliant moment, drops his guard, this this like all knowing, like I'm a man of the land facade. And he's like, wait, you saw that? Mm -hmm. It's so amazing. It's a great moment. It's the most likable that, that Phil is in the movie, in my opinion, um, is when he lets himself uh, be impressed by, by Peter, just like, yeah, it's a dog. <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would just say that it was kind of cool. Like, even though like I I might have suspected something about um a, a, about Phil's sexuality before it became that explicit at that point. It, it, it it's kind of cool in that it's like a I think even though yeah, it they kind she kind of lays it all out there in that scene by the water. Mm -hmm. At the same time, she kind of pulls back too and like leaves a lot unsaid and and the way you were talking about earlier and i thought that was kind of cool and that in a way it clicks the whole movie into place while at the same time she doesn't necessarily spell it all out for you from that point forth either and i don't know i, I just kind of respected that because like oh i kind of get what's going on here but i still don't know where it's going necessarily or how far she's going to take this but if nothing else it's kind of cool how uh she's recontextualized this character for us a little bit and really I, I don't know. Everything fell into place without necessarily, like you said, having my hand held completely. And I, that, I think that allowed me to like um, really be up in suspense up until the end. And I'm not completely sure what to make of the end. And we can talk about that in a minute, but I, I, I don't know that, that, that was kind of like my main takeaway though, with respect to like, you know, how it kind of commented on this sexuality and, you know, just how he, you know, the, just what the times are and how uh, he really, you know, like you said, he's such a nasty character, but like it's in, well, yeah, that's an easy way to kind of garner sympathy. I thought they did a good job of like making you understand him, if nothing else, even if it doesn't necessarily excuse some of his behavior uh, towards Rose. And I want to ask you about Rose a little bit. And because oh, yeah. uh, we haven't talked a lot about her, I'm, I'm a big Kirsten Dunst fan. It seems like she's finally going to get her first Oscar nomination. So I, I like um, Kirsten Dunst. She's great in this movie. Yeah. So, I mean, Man, that, that, I mean that that character really goes to the ringer. Um, what were what were your initial impressions of her journey, and did they change it all in the uh, upon your second viewing? Because I mean, I I don't know. I was just kind of like, I mean, I kind of got the fact that like, look, she's in a she's obviously her station in life changes a little bit, but I I think I I don't know. I think maybe that maybe the piano attempt scene struck me a little differently on that second go around, and like I don't know. I I, I was able to you know it's one thing to say show don't tell, but I think it's one other thing to be able to say like she's showing by like getting some incredible acting from her actors and you just get to kind of see what's on Kirsten Dunst's face. And it's like, Oh wow. Like she's truly overwhelmed by like uh, this, play, this place she's put into. I mean, I guess one way of looking at it is like, look, uh, money's not a cure all for everything in life, but also too, it's like, uh, it can also like, you know, uh, just having that kind of change in uh, social status can, you know, it can really do a number on a person. Uh, what did you think of just everything Kristen Dunst was doing in this movie? Yeah, no, that was that was something that so uh, both uh, Cody Smith McPhee and Kirsten Dunst's uh, Dunstances uh, Dunst Dunst. It should say Cody Smith McPhee's Australian too, so it's like it, I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, Ben Bennett Cumberbatch is British, but like Cody Smith McPhee though, I mean, I guess he's not a stranger to westerns. He did Slow West with. Uh, Michael Fassbender, but oh yeah, um, great, great so kind of similar in that he's just there largely with another 
uh, European actor, but I mean, uh, so I guess not shocking that he can like pull off some kind of American accent, but like uh, still fairly impressive nonetheless for a young actor from a different different side of the world. Yeah. Oh, oh, for sure. And, and I'm, I'm sure we could talk about him more in a bit, but you know, him, uh, his performance in Kirsten Dunst's uh, very much grew on me the second time. Like, I think the first time uh, Rose felt kind of a little um, one-dimensional, but uh, I, you definitely see more layers the second time that she is uh, someone who, you know, kind of only has one person in the world. It's her very weird son who she loves so much and who obviously would do anything for her you know they have a very close relationship with one another um and she can always kind of lean on him and then later she when she meets george she has him until she doesn't basically and then you know she is because she's because she's running this uh this inn at the beginning um making fried chicken for for rowdy cowboys and other passers by um or uh, visitors i guess and um then she marries into this incredible wealth and uh just she feels so out of place like that dinner scene where she's kind of ignored by her her mother-in-law and the governor um and she's just in that big empty house uh you know they mention that it's like really cold in there and she's wearing um like the sleeveless dress and she's so exposed um, like you just feel how cold it is for her in that moment. Um, you know, she is a very shy pianist, very, sorry about that, insecure, uh, in her abilities. And then you, you know, you have the moment where the dinner happens, the in-laws, the governor and, and the governor's wife are there and George is like, come on, just play, just play. And he has not been there. He doesn't know how hard it has been for Rose to even attempt practicing. Yeah, and probably the best example of him being aloof in the kind of way you were alluding to earlier, just not getting it. He's just not there. Yeah, and he's, yeah, she, there, there's this buildup. She sits down at the piano and she gets a single note out and she just can't. Um, and it's such a crushing blow. And luckily, you know, the movie is not cruel to her. She is very embarrassed, but like everyone else is like, ah, you know, whatever it, ha it happens. Um, the, the thing that really, yeah, not only is the movie not cruel to her, the characters aren't particularly cruel to her. I mean, it's just yeah. the, the enormity of the moment's what kind of like breaks her sobriety. And it might, yeah. And you know, that's a big thing that we learn early on. She does not like alcohol. Um, she does not drink. And, you know, we learned that her husband was an alcoholic, um, at least up until his, uh, his parents' suicide. And then, you know, the, the whole thing, it, it might've been a bad night. And then she could have gone from there. And then Phil walks in, who was invited to this dinner, but would not wash himself up after being explicitly asked by his brother. And then just mocks her for not being able to play um, in front of everyone. Um, and then once everyone is gone, she just like takes a sip of this this cocktail that her mother-in-law played by uh, Francis Conroy wouldn't even drink. And it's just this crushing moment. Um, and you just, she is, she, the thing about her and Phil is that they are the two most isolated characters in the entire movie. They could very easily be friends with each other. And she tries when she moves in, she's like, hi brother. Wonderful day. Yeah. Yeah. Hi brother. I'm not your brother. And for a while, even the housekeepers won't talk to her. Um, Thomas and Mackenzie and uh, uh, Genevieve Lemon, who uh, is, a, is, a, is a bit of a regular in Campion's uh, earlier films. I didn't know that. I, I, didn't, I didn't know her because I haven't seen a lot of those earlier movies, unless she had a part in the piano and I just didn't recognize it because the movie came out almost 30 years ago. It's a very small part. but she's Very funny to see the, Thomas and Mackenzie pop up, though. It's like, yeah. that's a very small role for you. I mean, I guess... Maybe she was just, I mean, I think she was cast before COVID, but like, it was just like, would have made sense. It's like, oh, she's from New Zealand, just like hanging out there and has a role to do where she doesn't have to leave this country that presumably handled COVID a lot better than us. But she's there. She gets like seven lines and gets to be like, kind of has like 
you know, that character is a wildly different disposition than everyone else in the movie, but it's kind of a, a funny little presence. <laughs> she's great. She has uh she's got the great moment where she sees Peter dissecting a rabbit who you've come to 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 like because you've seen the rabbit be really cute and then you see just this hollowed out like, skeleton. yeah i'm rough. the guy that got like a like a like an f on a quiz in like the 10th grade for just like straight up refusing to look at the fetal pig we had to dissect oh, and i so i could I, I couldn't even like fill out like we had a quiz it was just like filling out a diagram of where the body parts were and it's like i was like a straight a student in high school like graduated in the top five of my class and like i'm like I'll, I'll take the f on this i don't have to look at that fetal pig yeah uh f that um yeah she has the best reaction she's just like holy hell yeah um and then the next scene she's just uh refing uh badminton um, <laughs> having a great time um but uh yeah uh rose like she she tries to talk and tries to find a place and she just is iced out so thoroughly because you know, she probably identifies more with the two housekeepers, but she, she's, you know, she's the lady of the house. Like she's their boss. They don't see her as one of them. Like she married into a really good family. Um, and I think later on you sort of see them warm up to her a little bit, uh, or, uh, you know, they all warm up to each other more, but, uh, you know, I like where her, I do like where Rose's arc ends, which is, where she gives um, Adam Beach, who is like, you know, an actor with a storied career who has been in many, many, many movies for for decades, just have a very silent few shots where she gives him uh, the, uh, the, the hides to spite Phil because uh, she hates him that much. And then she gets these nice gloves and they're such a comfort for her. That's another motif in this film is the idea of touch and exposed hands um and you see people covering their hands or touching each other with bare hands you know um in a way to to symbolize closeness or caution and uh or carelessness in certain situations i think that's varying degrees of vulnerability really um which i think is nice and once she has this kind of safety blanket um you know you you really feel for her Although there's the scene before that where she tells Peter, she's like, I can't handle this Phil guy. Uh, I would, <laughs> I really want to be a kid again and get stars on my papers um, because what's happening now is way too much. And then her, her son's like, oh, take care of it. Well, um, so, but yeah. No, I was going to say, speaking of her son, I mean, we didn't talk necessarily a ton about uh, Peter yet. The, uh, the best performance in the movie, in my opinion. Yeah, it's in interesting. Great, great ensemble by the way it's interesting that you say that i mean i i don't necessarily disagree but I, it was kind of like cumberbatch i was like a little unsure of what to make of him at first i mean i think i think that's kind of the point is that there's just more to this guy that meets the eye mm -hmm. um but like I, I he's such a i mean cody smith miffy good actor but like such a such a awkwardy gangly looking fellow and so i was just like not not necessarily the kind of person you would just like expect to see in a western and he has like all these different mannerisms and stuff like that which i mean look it's very intentional uh to do that for the character but i just like you know i wasn't really sure what to make of him but like it, i mean i mean it almost even starts maybe in that scene where he's dissecting the rabbit i don't know like i mean uh but it's like where it's like oh like this guy like has like i mean he's into some other shit you know and like, i i i don't know if that maybe that i don't know if that's where it kind of like i started seeing that character in a in a much different light and viewing all his actions through like a I just threw a different, I guess this through a different lens of sorts, but I was like, oh, wow. Like he's not just some like slight ineffectual guy. Like he has his own, he has his own goals with what he wants to do with his career, but he's like willing to do some like uh, literally and figuratively, maybe get his hands a little dirty to like actually achieve that. And it's like, oh, it's it kind of snuck up on me in a way, but I thought the performance evolved throughout the length of the movie in like a, in a very effective way that kind of like reflected what we were, what we knew about him at any given point in the movie. Yeah, he's a character who, is very you know he's he's very particular you know when he works as a waiter for his for his mom um you know he is very careful about putting the cloth on his arm and explains why he does it you know he's someone who does not um who will do dirty work but is he is very careful not to get caught and uh you know he loves making those paper roses 
um, one one interesting thing about his character is that he, is that his dialogue bookends the film. First, in this um, sort of statement about how when his father died, he said he would be there for his mom at every turn, um, and then at the end, when the last thing we hear is this uh, verse from uh, uh, Psalms twenty two about you know the title of the film, basically, you know, I I think. Peter is someone who, like Phil, is fascinated by nature, um, but he takes a much more clinical, careful approach, where Phil is just in awe of, of the wilderness as this, this grand beast that you can just kind of have and own, um, where Peter isn't like that. Peter is someone who, you know, there's the scene where he goes and he finds a, um, a hide that is covered in anthrax you know he's just learned to ride a horse and he's going up these steep mountains and there's this scene where he, the where he's going down this this incline and cody smith mcphee is like like or, or peter is like whimpering he's very scared to be doing this thing but he he does it anyway because he is um very brave in spite of the fact that he you know it's not a an obvious choice to be working on uh, a barn he also just is really good with animals for some reason mm -hmm. the dog really likes him he eventually does figure out how to ride a horse um there's that scene where he's going through the camp and um all of phil's men are just hollering and harassing him and then he just does something with the birds and then all quiets them i didn't totally figure that scene out but uh um, it's right when phil and peter start their sort of camaraderie and then, yeah, just slowly but surely, Peter works his way into Phil's life, sort of just sussing, sussing Phil out, asking probing questions, getting incrementally closer until you have this final scene between them, which is so sexually charged and 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 so satisfying in in a real certain way, where like um, where Peter is like rolling cigarettes, he rolls a cigarette for Phil, he lights it, and then he and then he holds it for Phil as Phil takes uh, drags. And it's this idea where he's letting, uh, he's showing this tenderness, kind of creating the illusion that he, that, uh, he is on Phil's side or that he is uh, submissive to Phil, but he's the one with the cigarette in his hand. He's the one in control, which is the great thing about Peter. Is he, uh, the first time he and Phil meet, Phil really lays into him, makes fun of him, and it hurts Peter's feelings. But he doesn't do any, anything about it. It's when it's when Phil uh, gets to Rose that Peter decides to do something about it. Mm. That's when he's like, "I can't let this slide," and it's then that it is sort of implied that uh, yeah, that this Peter guy maybe not new to 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 getting guys off his mom's back. Um, that's just my own reading. I don't know how how uh, into the idea you are of. Peter being involved with his dad's uh, uh, death. I hadn't really heard that up until then. I mean, I guess I, when I was watching the second time, like I, it seemed like he was uh, the way he talked about that happening did seem a little measured or uh, not as straightforward necessarily in the intonations than it did the first time I saw it. But I honestly didn't even like take it there in my head. Now I got now now you got me thinking that's that's the implication that i've sort of gotten there's not enough there to suggest that it's really what happened but it does make you think that there is that there's something up with this with this guy um who you know it just he knows who he is and and he knows what he needs to do for the at least the one person in his life who he he cares about but yeah peter and then cody smith mcphee you just you never suspect it and yet when it happens, it's seamless. The way he just worked, he, he plays, he plays Benedict Cumberbatch, he plays us. Um, and it's, it's all of a piece. It's just a, a really, really original character too. That like the, the, the sort of kind of, I don't want to say the, the very meek disposition is there. And so is the sort of the extent, the, the, and so are the the drastic limits with which he's willing to go um to uh you know 
to set things right. Yeah. What do you think about what do you think about the the note the movie ends on? I don't think this was necessarily planned on Peter's part. Uh, um, I think Peter's just looking for opportunities, and it sort of just presents itself. Uh, it's sort of an inevitability where um, he, uh, you know, he Phil is very careless. He is not hygienic. Is the first thing you really learn about him, um, and so Peter gives Phil his hide. Uh, Phil opens up his wound as he's sort of molding the hide to use for the rope and gets infected uses seduction and then the next scene phil is so sick and then he's like in a tux stumbling around delirious looking for peter and peter is nowhere um and you have this shot that uh you know the um Phil's, uh, Phil has these sort of uh, bookending shots that's sort of reminiscent of the searchers where you see him um, wandering around the ranch through the windows of the inside of the of the house. You see it at the beginning and then you see it at the end again um, just as someone who's always on the outside and dies as he lives without anyone, just totally alone. And then the next time you see him, he has been shaved He's wearing clothes, he's been cleaned, and he it's he's kind of been neutered in death, stripped of this um rough and tumble identity that he spent decades um embracing. And you know, I, I don't feel bad for Phil dying. I don't really think there's any other way it could have happened for that character. There is something kind of uh poignant about seeing him just uh stripped of that identity um but uh at the same time like you know it makes you wonder like whether or not that really was who he was and um whether it's any more dishonest to kind of present him as his family wishes they could see him whether you know versus how he saw himself or how he uh chose to be um especially when being a cowboy is an, is an escape for him it is he, and it is a thorough, categorical, like rejection of his upbringing and of uh, a certain kind of class and culture. And yeah, and then the ending is Peter ha reads this Bible verse, and then he sees his mom and George reunited um, after George is kind of gone for for a good chunk of the film, um, sort of popping in and out um, in the back half with a little less frequency. Um, but yeah, he, he is, he has set things right in the world. He has protected his mother, you know, and, um, and, and there's, you know, I, I don't think there's a really ominous note behind that. I think maybe the first time I saw, it, I would have thought he's planning to kill Jesse Plemons next, but that's, that's not what's happening. I don't think he's, he, he just lives to, to, to poison another day. And it's, it's one of the few kind of it's one of the happier campion endings. We'll put it that way. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's a, it's a funny statement to make, but not untrue. She, um, yeah, she doesn't, she doesn't end her movies in a lot of happy places. The piano is very ambiguous in the cut is like sort of this, which is like, you know, um, in a lonely place, but you know, with even more graphic psychosexual detail. <laughs> And Bright Star is a, a great love that ends in 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 death and oh. in tragedy. Hey, don't spoil it for me. I just bookmarked that on Netflix. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, it's okay. It's okay. Um, um, the, are there any, any other parts of, before we wrap up? Any other parts of this movie you want to talk about that we haven't touched on? I mean, I don't know what, how much there is to say about Johnny Greenwood's score, other than that it's like really good. Yeah, or you, you, I mean, I mean, you saw it in theaters. Whether anything special about your theater going experience and actually getting to see these. New Zealand, New Zealand landscapes on a big screen that you wanted to shout out. Just any other parts of this movie that we, I didn't ask you yet about that you wanted to at least uh, shout out before we signed off. I mean, there's, there is, there's, there are a lot of things I could do with that. Uh, uh, I could do that with this uh, film, just point to an element and say, that's great. <laughs> like Johnny uh, Greenwood's score is um, it's amazing. I mean, 
you know, Johnny Greenwood, great composer, obviously the the esteemed guitarist of Radiohead for for many decades at this point. Yeah, the I, I gotta say, uh, just seeing this on the big screen, um, and I, I tend to sit closer to the screen just to have the the screen just envelop me. And uh, with Power of the Dog, that is definitely what happened. It's just these sprawling vistas you get totally consumed by, and you feel it. You feel how expansive and endless um, these uh these environments are and you feel really really lonely and uh on top of that it's just gorgeous to look at um and you know you you get to see a lot of the detail and sort of um how campion and her her dp use a lot of shallow focus uh lenses uh which is uh really difficult when they're on horseback and you're trying to move with these animals and um and trying to 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 pull focus it just uh thinking about it uh makes makes my uh heart hurt for for those camera operators mm-hmm. um but it's just impeccable everything is it's so gorgeously designed every performance is is perfect we didn't really talk about jesse plemons he's amazing in it he has that kind of blankness that really works for him in like yeah he's, uh, he's amazing in everything He's great. Loved him since like Mike. Uh, you know, he's he's the he's the lead singer of Crucifictorious in Friday Night Lights. Um he's he's been one of my favorite actors for a long time and he just does not disappoint. I do like that you go back to like Mike with him too. I do too. So it's it's kind of funny like to think that like I first knew him as like a villain when like I was 11 years old watching a movie like that and then like to see where his career is going. It's kind of incredible. Um, it's, it's like it's how i feel about like uh, alex wolf where like i saw him on like naked brothers band when i was a kid and he has been uh, playing like the annoying drummer kid brother of of nat wolf and now he's like one of the most exciting actors of his generation hmm. and same with jesse plemons who uh you know is the is the bully in in like mike and then slowly becomes uh just you know maybe he's got a good agent just makes good choices but is in amazing projects you know breaking bad the master fargo just so so many things um game night which he's my best supporting actor winner for that movie uh he's so funny why do you need three bags of chips <laughs> how can that be profitable for freedom <laughs> uh <laughs> um one of my favorite lines of any movie in the last like decade it's so good no, just I loved this movie, and you know, it's it, it's something that really rewards patience and commitment. Um, that has a lot to say about uh, a lot of the same things Jane, uh, Jane Campion talks about. You know, sort of uh, the arbitrary constraints of of, of social um, uh, of social mores of of a given era. You know, of um, living honestly, of sexual politics um and you know just she's the the best filmmaker who just lets people do things that people do um which i think is is so sorely missing i like when characters make mistakes i like when they're when they make human choices and she just delivers time and time again time and again in really exciting thought-provoking ways and you know I, I wish that we didn't have to wait 12 years between movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, she she made a hell of a film. I mean, I love this thing. It's, I think at this point, just behind Pig is my favorite film of the Ooh, year. Pig's but, my number one too. Yeah, Pig rules. Yeah, speaking of Alex Wolf. Yeah, yeah. Another movie I saw twice in theaters. Um, so good. I have it on the shelf. I'll go watch it later. Um, love Pig um love power of the dog a lot of animals <laughs> um, yeah yeah uh Nothing no for it. i agree it's 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 right there in my top five as well like i'm like behind on all my letterbox stuff and updating my list and putting up reviews and things because i just between actually doing the podcast and it's hard to like find the time to write the stuff and be disciplined and i'm also anal about like waiting until i have the podcast posted before i actually post the movie review on letterbox so it's like I'm like well behind in my rankings, yet I can still comfortably say that this movie is going to probably be right there towards the top uh, when it's all said and done. It, it, it's, it, it's so weird if someone is listening to me, like trying to 
you know, explain the plot at the beginning, it, it, it would be like, wait, wait, how is that like an exciting movie to watch? And, um, you know, for a movie that's largely just about these people, you know, existing in this space that she's physical space that she's created and, you know, how they kind of, how they kind of end up clashing and bouncing off each other. It's, it's certainly like, you know, tense as hell, even if there aren't like necessarily, like I said before, that many plot developments. And it's just, so if, if, if just hearing like me try and describe the plot doesn't excite you, don't let that like make your decision for you. Cause it, uh, you know, everything else that goes into this makes it like incredibly watchable beyond that. Um, oh, and knowing how the pieces all fit together, like, honestly, it doesn't ruin the film at all. It just lets you focus on different things and just being in the universe of it in, you know, in a universe this well-crafted and this beautifully articulated is just an absolute marvel. Yeah. Uh, Holden, before we sign off, uh, what we normally do at the end here is we give the guests a chance to plug anything else they want to plug, uh, whether it be something else you've been watching recently or even if you don't really have any other things you want to recommend that you've watched recently, just, you know, personal social media stuff, anything like that you want to direct people to. So anything else you want to uh, shout out here before we wrap up? Yeah. Um, you know, this is, I saw this maybe a month and a half ago, uh, but uh, I mean, I'm watching stuff all the time, but I, I, I wanted to shout out to Toby Hooper's uh, movie, The Fun House, which is, you know, um, much like Power of the Dog, it's got this first half that's a lot of setup, um, a lot of slow burn tension building, and then the second da- uh, half is just knocking it all down. It's so good. It's a great send up of like uh, horror movies um, from like Psycho up until the uh, slashers of the '80s. You know when that movie comes out, um, it's it's so good. I think it's on Peacock right now. If mm. you wanna you know, watch commercials with your movies. Um, it's, it's really fantastic. Or, you know, check out your, uh, I'll plug libraries, you know, see if, <laughs> see if your library has it. Those, those are cool. Actually, if ever you're having trouble finding a movie that is not streaming anywhere, just check your library. And if your system doesn't have it, they can get it through interlibrary loan, most likely. Oh, um, good to know. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, if you want, my movie thoughts and opinions you can follow me on letterboxd uh at uh, hi otis martinson um or on instagram at uh, places where i look like ed sheeran where i do them uh, in bite-sized sort of uh uh comments and <laughs> whatnot uh, yeah. other than that yeah i don't know listen to the rewind it's pretty good I like appreciate it. it appreciate it uh the, um i uh i guess the one thing i'll plug uh I've I I I I got I got hit the halfway point this season and this morning in hit I hit the halfway point this morning in season two of the Great, which on Hulu. It is it is great. I think yeah. uh, I think Nicholas Holt might be giving like the best performance of anyone on television. Uh, and I highly recommend uh, people check it out. And Elle Fanning's also great. I love her and just about everything. But I mean, so are like all the supporting performances on there. But it's like you know if you know anything about the uh, real life events surrounding these characters. It's to say you should really enjoy every second you get to watch Nicholas Holt on screen playing Peter the Great. Um, uh, personally, I'll say, uh, or if you want to find me on Letterboxd, it's Josh Chernovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y. Same thing on Twitter. Uh, podcast email is the Rewind Movie Pod at gmail.com. Podcast email is the Rewind Movie Pod at gmail.com. The Twitter is at Rewind Movie Pod. Uh, I want to thank Holden again for joining me uh, coming up next on the podcast. I'd imagine we're going to either have a podcast on West Side Story or Encanto or uh, depending on when I get to those and when my guests get to see all those. So um, everyone has that to look forward to. I want to thank again Holden again for joining me. They thank all of you for listening and we'll see you next time.